Hi, I'm Kathleen Hicks, Senior Vice President and Director of the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And this is Defense 2020, a CSIS podcast examining critical defense issues in the United States' 2020 election cycle. We bring in defense experts from across the political spectrum to survey the debates over the U.S. military strategy, missions, and funding. This podcast is made possible by contributions from BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the Talus Group. Hi, I'm Beverly Kirk, Director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative in the International Security Program at CSIS, and I'm filling in as guest host this week on Defense 2020. On this episode, I'll be speaking with an expert on presidential transitions, David Marchek, Director of the Center for Presidential Transition at the Partnership for Public Service. David served in several positions in government under the Clinton administration and hosts the Transition Lab podcast. Dave, thanks so much for being here on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, we only waited a few days before we learned that uh, Vice President Joe Biden won the 2020 election over the incumbent Donald Trump. And now over roughly the next couple of months, a transition will take place before President-elect Biden takes office in January 2021. So take us through what takes place during the transition and kind of describe the timeline for it. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. My first job out of grad school was at CSIS, so I'm delighted to be back with you. Um, Let's talk about a normal transition. In a normal transition, what would be happening today would be exactly what President-elect Biden is doing. He's doing everything right. He's announcing personnel. He's talking to heads of state. He's moving forward with policy. He's moving forward with speed. He's probably the most experienced person ever to be elected president of the United States. And his transition team is probably the most experienced, most well-organized, most ready-to-go transition team ever. I think that, you know, at the Center for Presidential Transition, we're in the business of making transitions better, smoother, faster. And I think that people will be studying the Biden transition team's work for years to come. What's not happened today is access to the agencies. So typically the day after the election or the day after the election is called, uh, hundreds of people start going into more than a hundred agencies to work with agency officials on what the big problems are, what the big issues are, what's coming down the pike. And they get ready to brief both the president elect and also the cabinet secretary or agency head designate. They start processing personnel, both through the FBI and through the Office of Government Ethics to get ready to send those nominations to the Senate. They get access to space. They get access to classified briefings. There's just a huge apparatus all across the government to make the transition smooth. And it's critically important for our national security that that happen. But that's not what's happening right at the moment. So, uh, What impact does that potentially have on the Biden transition? Well, I think that President-elect Biden said it right yesterday. It could cost lives. So, you know, the traditional biggest risk is in the national security space, and we can come back to that. I think the biggest risk this cycle is probably around COVID. That is, 
let's take Operation Warp Speed. So there's a huge effort in the Pentagon and the Department of Health around getting a safe and effective vaccine out to 300 million Americans. There are distribution plans in place, and the American people would benefit from having the Biden transition team and the agencies working on that collaborating today. There's also just a huge amount of work in the national security space that should take place. So there are 17 intelligence agencies that are prepared to, to host the Biden team. That's not happening. We know from history that national security incidents don't wait for a president to be ready. They happen. You know, I'll give you an example from the Clinton administration where I was a young kid, but so Bill Clinton took office on January 20th, 1993. Within the first 25 days, there was a huge refugee crisis with Haiti. There was the first World Trade Center bombing, and there was the siege at Waco. All of that happened within the first month of the Clinton administration. Within the first couple of months of the George W. Bush administration, a American surveillance plane collided with a Chinese interceptor over the South China Sea. That plane landed in Hainan Island, and Bush, the newly you know, inaugurated Bush and his national security team basically negotiated to get the plane back and also the pilots back. And then obviously eight months later, September 11th happened. And what the 9-11 Commission found was that the delayed transition had a material impact on our country's readiness because Bush did not get all of his national security people in their seats quickly enough. And the 9-11 Commission warned of the implications of that happening in the future. And that has to be a top of mind concern for the incoming Biden administration, since we are more than a week out from the election and none of the things that normally happen during a transition have yet happened. So in the meantime, I know that the the incoming administration is working and, and trying to find workarounds to get prepared. How difficult do you think that that is for them right now, having actually been through this process yourself? Well, I think the country's fortunate that Vice President Biden or President-elect Biden is so experienced and has such an experienced team around him. There's a lot they can do and they are doing. They have people that have worked in these agencies at the highest level. They have good relationships with people that have been in the agencies. They can't talk to the agencies now. That can't happen. So they can do a lot. But the final part of the transition, the guts of the transition, the collaboration, that can't happen until the GSA gives the green light. And that's called the ascertaining of election results, which has not yet happened. Exactly. The 1963 Presidential Transition Act had the word ascertain in it. Basically, the GSA administrator shall ascertain the winner, the outcome of the election. And it's never really been politicized before. In fact, the fact that Congress gave this authority to the GSA demonstrated that it didn't want it to be politicized. GSA has essentially been a non-political agency. They're responsible for real estate and procurement. And there's never been a real issue. The only time it's ever been an issue was the year 2000. But in that year, the factual circumstance was very different because we had one state determining the outcome of the election. 
in that one state, Florida, there were 537 votes that separated the two candidates. And there was a mandatory recount under state law. Here, as Andy Card and John Podesta put in their op-ed from about a week ago, these were the two opposing chief of staffs. One worked for Clinton, one worked for Bush. So they warred over this in the year 2000. They both said that this factual circumstance is entirely different. You have Biden ahead in four states. He would need to turn, Trump would need to turn three states. He would need to turn Pennsylvania and Georgia, plus either Arizona and Nevada. So in essence, there's not a chance of this of this election result being overturned and the need to move forward is critical given that you mentioned the pandemic, the COVID pandemic and all of the potential security issues. So aside from that, President-elect Biden has already started to choose people to fill positions. Can you talk us through putting personnel in place and typically how that works? Sure. So. The president-elect has the responsibility of appointing 4,000 political appointees. 1,250 of them need to be confirmed by the Senate. There are about 400 appointees in the White House. And then there's lots of Schedule Cs and what's called non-career SESs all around the government. These are people like chiefs of staff, general counsels, and others. So best practice, uh, which Biden is following, is to appoint your chief of staff first and focus on the White House staff. Those are people that can start January 20th, they don't need Senate confirmation. And those are the people that are going to be close to the president that you want out there first. After that, you start focusing on the cabinet. Typically, the cabinet is announced in themes. So there might be a a day where he announces the national security team, another where he announces the economic team, another when he announces the uh, health team. That's what Bush, I mean, Clinton did this as well. So Clinton, his first announcement was around the economic team. That was a time when we were in a recession. So he announced Lloyd Benson, Bob Rubin, Alice Rivlin, Leon Panetta first. And so I don't know what President-elect Biden is going to do, what order he's going to do, but typically they pick whatever the most important issue of the day is and announce those people. I'm not sure if he's going to do national security or health or economic Frankly, he's he's taking office with unprecedented problems for a president-elect. So he's been dealt a very, very difficult hand. was just going to ask if you thought he was going to put the folks in the national security realm in first just because of the situation we find ourselves in today. But it's a good point you made there that it's not clear which he will do first. I want to circle back one last question on the on the smoothness or the rockiness of the transition. Has there ever been a transition like the one that we're seeing in, in throughout history? Has there ever been one this rocky? There have been terrible transitions. The worst transition in the history of the United States was 1860. Obviously, Abraham Lincoln was elected in the four months between the election and the inauguration. Seven states seceded. Half the Buchanan cabinet basically said we're aligned with the South. Buchanan was totally absent. Congress did nothing. And meanwhile, Lincoln was halfway across the country and, you know, he took a train to Washington. And there's a wonderful book by Ted Widmer, uh, who was on a podcast that I host called Transition Lab. And it was all about the Lincoln transition to power in that train trip. The second worst transition in history was, was probably 1932, Hoover to Roosevelt. 
again, that was Roosevelt was the last president to take office when there was a four month interregnum. Now there's two month interregnum, you know, or, or basically 75 days. During that transition, the Great Depression peaked. You had banks running in 25 states. Hitler came to power. Japan deepened its occupation of China. And there was no collaboration between Hoover and Roosevelt. Outside of the Secretary of State did kind of, he did get Hoover's permission to go up to Hyde Park, but he did a lot kind of on his own to brief Roosevelt and to make sure that Roosevelt was as ready as possible. But Hoover had terrible disdain for Roosevelt. You recall that Roosevelt had polio as a you know young man and couldn't walk. He was in a wheelchair. And Hoover thought that Roosevelt was of weak body and weak mind. And so he thought that he wasn't up for the job. So Hoover's approach to a smooth and effective transition of power was to try to convince Roosevelt that he should abandon the New Deal and adopt Hoover's policies which obviously would not have been great for the country. So that was, that was a terrible transition. In modern times, the, the Truman and Eisenhower really didn't like each other. That was not a great transition. They didn't talk to each other on the way up to the hill for the swearing in. Eisenhower, you know, didn't even attend the ceremonial breakfast that Truman um, hosted. So, you know, that was a, not a great transition. And Truman tried because, again, you recall that Truman – was kept in the dark by Roosevelt and, you know, only a hundred or so days later uh, made the, the decision to drop the bomb on Hiroshima. So there have been some good transitions. There have been some bad transitions. You know, I think the best modern transition probably is Bush to Obama. Bush was very seized with the issue. He had a challenging transition in because of the 37 days. Nine months later, 9-11 happened. And he felt that we had two wars going on and that he should create the red carpet for whomever came into office. So he asked Josh Bolton, who was then his chief of staff, to kind of create the gold standard of a transition. And Bolton did a really good job. And actually what Bolton did was coordinate the agencies, create briefings, create tabletop exercises, and with Steve Hadley, the national security advisor. And a lot of what they did now is required under law. So I'd say that Bush really gets credit for creating the gold standard transition. And, you know, thank God he did, because by the time the transition came around, we were in the depth of a, of a financial crisis. And Hank Paulson, who was then the Secretary of Treasury, collaborated extensively with the Obama team, talked all the time with Obama. And I would say that transition, because of the great work of Paulson, Bush, Bolton, and others with the Obama team, it saved jobs. It helped keep, you, keep people in their houses. There was a time of, of you know, terrible foreclosures. May have helped save the auto industry because they worked together to fashion a rescue package for the auto industry over the objections of many Republicans in Congress. And I would say that's that's probably the best modern transition. If I could follow up and ask if that's the best one, and we're now in the midst of a really, really difficult one, but what I hear you saying, it's not unprecedented for transitions to go south and not be great. But is there a point at which we could find ourselves right now with the incoming Biden team not really ever getting access to what they need before they have to start on January 20th at 12.01 p.m.? I'm not going to speculate on the timing. I suspect that this will move at some point. I don't know exactly when 
the outcome of the election is clear. The implications for the country are significant. It's not a time to play politics. And we need the outgoing and the incoming to collaborate on both national security and the COVID crisis. And if I could ask another question about just the national security transition, given given what they're working with right now, what are some of the critical issues that they are going to have to tackle or that they're probably already tackling ahead of, of walking in the door? So, well, I mean, the national security issues are you know significant. Obviously, Russia, China, the Middle East, what's going on in Iran. I think that, you know, the Trump team, I'm sure, would like to brief the Biden team on, I think, some breakthrough work in the Middle East of getting three Gulf states to recognize Israel. You know, Steve Hadley, he prepared 40 memos for the incoming national security team. 40. He instructed each of his officials in the national security councils, each of the different directorates, to personally brief the incoming folks that were going to take over those roles. They briefed the Obama team on operational activities that are classified. Bush personally, within a week of the election, briefed Obama on the deepest, darkest secrets and operational activities. And, you know, it it proved important. I'll just give you uh, an anecdote here. So I just downloaded President Obama's new book. I had heard about this from Josh Bolton and Steve Hadley, but I never really read about it directly. But, you know, they work closely together. And then on the day of Obama's inauguration, there was a credible threat that four Somali nationalists were plotting some type of terror attack against Obama and the inauguration. When you had, I don't know, a million, I can't remember how many people were outside in the cold on that day. So literally when Obama and Bush were meeting in the Oval Office, someone from the Situation Room came up, opened the Oval Office door, tapped someone on the shoulder and said, I need you, 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 you. And people from both the Bush National Security Team and the incoming Obama National Security Team went down to the sit room and basically dealt with a terrorism threat. Obama writes in his book that he actually took a piece of paper, or maybe it was a three by five card, with instructions on what he would tell the crowd of people standing there if a bomb went off. So that type of collaboration between the outgoing and the incoming literally saves lives. That is an incredible story. Amazing to think that that happened. And the former president has written about it in his book. And it is a perfect example of the importance of having the cooperating between the, the two teams. And hopefully we will see that happen at some point. Dave Marchek, thank you so much for being here with us on the Defense 2020 podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. On behalf of CSIS, I'd like to thank our sponsors, BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the Talis Group for contributing to Defense 2020. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out some of our other CSIS podcasts, including Smart Women, Smart Power, The Truth of the Matter, The Asia Chessboard, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. 
Visit CSIS.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog. And for all of CSIS's defense-related content, visit defense360.csis.org.